Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Jess Coulson. She's a PhD student at the University of East Anglia, and she looks at representations of disembodied souls in early medieval saints' lives, which leads her to the study of dreams and visions of medieval holy people. Jess, thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me, Amanda. So today you're here to speak to us about Godric of Finkel. Yes, I am. It's very excited to talk about Godric today. But before we talk about him, as always, we want to hear a little bit more about you. How did you find your way to the study of mysticism? Yeah, so I am approaching the study of mysticism with a background in history and literature. So I first encountered visions in general in biographies of saints, in the lives of saints and the histories of early medieval England. And it was when I was reading this literature that I first encountered visions of the afterlife and all these wonderful near-death experiences that I just had no idea existed, you know, in the medieval corpus. And when I was looking for topics to do my MPhil thesis um, when I was doing medieval history, I decided to focus on visions of the afterlife. And I looked at that genre of literature um, and I really just fell in love with the whole vision writing tradition of the medieval period and the way that people in quite a relatable way would write down these incredible dream narratives. And that really led me to study visions and mystical experiences. So I started looking at the lives of saints and I noticed that there were so many different types of visions in this genre. Okay, so you came to mysticism through early saints' lives, but how did you come to early saints' lives in the first place? I came across them when doing my undergraduate thesis. I was looking at the ways religious women in early medieval England helped to provide different kinds of pastoral care and spiritual support. And it was when I was looking for these religious women like Hild and Peya that I came across the lives of saints. Often these saints' lives would be sort of mixed into histories or collected together in different ways. They're quite a scattered corpus, especially in the earlier period. But yeah, I just really loved the way that so many visions and dreams became a part of these narratives. That is very cool. Did you find dreams and visions playing a larger part in early saints' lives than maybe you had originally expected? I think they did play a larger part than I expected in that I didn't realise just how many kinds of visionary and religious experience there were. And I think there are still types of experience that we haven't quite got round to giving their own category yet, uh, or we haven't quite got a label for them. And so when I'm doing my current research for my PhD, I'm looking at all these visions of human souls, but I'm not really sure what to call them. Sometimes they seem to be like ghost stories. Other times they're visions when the saint sees a soul leave a body and ascend through the air to heaven. And it's hard to know whether to call them visions of departing souls or visions of disembodied souls and I'm sort of playing around with the terms a lot probably but I just find it incredible how there always seems to be more every time I look back at these texts. I love that they're seeing souls move in the moment of death like there's no 
mirror under the nose, are they still breathing? It's, I definitely know they're dead because I just saw their soul move. It went that way. Absolutely. I love the direction of it as well. You know, it's either upwards or eastwards. And it's incredible how they can trace this journey and really map out what happens to the soul after death. And of course, that's the point, I suppose, of these visions to offer that consolation to the living that the afterlife is more knowable than we think. Okay. And when did you find Godric? So Godric is actually my new favorite mystic. I'm still quite new to him. So really, I came across him in my current work on representations of souls. Godric of Finkel is one of these many holy people who saw souls leave their body and go on a journey either to heaven or to hell. And I really loved the way that Godric was so interested in the soul and what it looked like. I also loved the way that the text we have that tells us about Godric seemed so conscious about the representation and the appearance of the soul. Godric was often asked a lot of questions about his mystical experiences. And one of the questions that seems to have come up quite often is what did this spirit or what did this soul look like? And sometimes he gives these brilliant answers. And that's very much why I have been drawn to Godric and some of his brilliant experiences and visions of these different spiritual beings. Amazing. Okay, so can you tell us a bit about him, please? When did he live? What do we know about him? Who was Godric? So we actually know quite a bit about Godric, and that is thanks to his first biographer, Reginald of Durham. And from Reginald's life of Godric, we know that he was born in Norfolk, sometime in the second half of the 11th century. And Godric had quite a humble start in life. He started out as a trader, a peddler, and he eventually became a merchant seaman. It was on these dangerous sea voyages to various places, including Rome, that Godric learns about the lives of saints, and he began to call upon the saints at various shrines to ask for their protection on his journeys. After about 16 years of trading and travelling, Godric decides to set out for Jerusalem as a pilgrim, and he then later sets out again on another pilgrimage to Rome. And it's during these pilgrimages that Godric hears even more about saints like Cuthbert, who had found these incredible, fulfilling lives in solitude. And this really inspires Godric to become a hermit, and he eventually settles at Finkel, which is about three miles outside of Durham. The next 60 years of Godric's life are primarily spent at his hermitage at Finkel. Finkel is the ideal place for Godric to live this life, mainly because it is a kind of English equivalent of that desert ideal that hermits and aesthetics were looking for. So Finkel is full of woods and thorns and animals, and Godric goes here to live this religious life of solitude, although he is visited very frequently and also cared for by the monks from nearby Durham. Okay, so his primary goal is seeking out solitude. 
Yes. Okay, but does he give any sort of reasoning for why he's seeking this out? So, Godric falls into this wider tradition of asceticism and solitary spiritual life and fulfillment. And this is very much modelled on the early Christian desert fathers who would seek this life of solitude and they would find this immense spiritual connection with the divine there. But also as a hermit, Godric also was incredibly involved in a local community. So even though he was seeking solitude, it was through this connection with the divine that he attained that he actually attracted lots of people to him, seeking his advice, his consolation, or even just to hear more about his visions and experiences. Now, you obviously mentioned earlier you work on dreams and visions and how they appear in these works. And as we've talked about on previous episodes, when you're dealing with mystics, they have various manners of seeing, of cultivating their experiences. They see and experience divine things in a variety of different ways. So in Godric of Finkel's case, what does his mystical experience look like? What does it consist of? Godric finds his mystical experiences, I think, through these altered states of consciousness that he attains through either his aesthetic practices, through his music, through prayer and meditation. And these visions take a variety of forms. He sees all kinds of spiritual beings. He is able to send out his spirit to different places. It really seems like the way of life he leads detaches his spirit from his body in a way, but it doesn't make him unconnected from his body, which is an important part to emphasize in a lot of his visions. He is very much spiritually and physically involved in these mystical experiences. Okay, elaborate. Tell me what that means. Tell me all about it. So some of Godric's most intimate encounters with the divine seem to take place through or with material objects, and they seem to take place in quite a located way, as they tend to be in his chapel or in his oratory. For example, we hear that after praying one day, Godric sat on the steps by the altar in his church, and he starts to sing something cheerful from the Psalms with his Psalter open on his lap. He then turns his eyes from the Psalter to the wooden crucifix that is standing on a wooden beam above his altar. But as he looks at the crucifix, he sees the cross and the image of the crucified Christ that's on it start to sway. And it begins bending and moving as if it is a, like a flexible or a living thing. And I think this example shows that the crucifix combined with the Psalter and Godric's songs and meditations really becomes a vehicle for the divine in a way that combines the spiritual and the contemplative with the physical and the tangible in a brilliant way. So there's a spatial aspect to it, but there's also an acknowledgement of the world around him as being inspirational and in a way stimulating these experiences. Definitely. It seems like the world around him very much informs the experiences that he has. 
So when we're talking about Godric's life and his experiences, where is this information coming from? What texts do we have? Did he write things himself or have we just got things written about him? What kind of sources do we have? The main source we have for the life of Godric of Finkel comes from Reginald of Durham. He has written the longest and the most vivid life of Godric. So the monks of Durham, who were near Finkel, would often visit Godric. They would give him spiritual and, increasingly, as he grew older, physical care. Reginald's work brings together the conversations that he had when he visited Godric with testimonies from witnesses to Godric's visions and miracles. This piece of work is a hagiography, so Reginald's aim here is probably to give future generations a model of virtue and a good religious life that they could follow. Do we know anything about Reginald? Reginald is an interesting character because he is not just Godric's biographer. He also seems to have been his caregiver and maybe even a relative. And Reginald's voice sometimes enters the narrative. We have the first person at times that seems to suggest that the people who were caring for Godric are bringing their own views into the narrative. And it's quite interesting to see that eyewitness testimony to Godric's mystical experiences. Okay, so you mentioned Godric as being an example of a holy life for other people and of people coming to visit him and ask for spiritual guidance. Is his form of mysticism seen as something that is replicable and open to everyone? Or is this constructed as more of a very specific, unique to him experience? I think Godric comes across as having this unique connection with the divine. People come to him asking about their loved ones who are away or who have passed away and expect him to be able to give them an answer or to help them in some way. And I think that shows that Godric is quite special, especially in this local community. He becomes quite an important person in their minds. And I think Reginald is also sensitive to this. He certainly seems to think that Godric is a saint, even though he was never canonised. But to Reginald, he was everything that a saint should be. And I think Reginald really goes out of his way to show how Godric was this incredible saint who had a really special connection with Christ and other saints and how he could intercede on people's behalf for them. I feel so bad for people who are seeking out the solitary life and wanting to leave the world and go out on their own into the woods, because the story always seems to be that they feel like they're going to go out there and they're going to pray and they're going to be communing with God and it's going to be this wonderful spiritual thing. And then all these other people show up and are like, but pray for us and tell us how to live and they just never get left alone. Yes, absolutely. People become quite fascinated with what Godric has to offer. His stories fascinate them, and they particularly captivate the monks from Durham, who endlessly seem to come to him with questions and maybe some doubts about his mystical experiences. You know, they really want to know the details. What did they say to you? What did they look like? And I think it's quite an interesting element of mystical experience, the way that the mystic seems to have this hidden knowledge that 
everyone else can sense and wants a piece of. Is this the medieval equivalent of, oh, you like that band, name all of their songs? Like, what is this random monkey been trying to do? The thing with these mystical experiences is that they are had by an individual. You want all the details, fine, but it's not like you're going to be able to verify them. So what's the point? Godric gives a brilliant example of that exact feeling when one time he briefly describes some visions of Christ that he had seen. And after Reginald has been asking him lots of questions about it, he says, you will not ask me any more about these things, lest you are of further annoyance to me. And I think that is an incredible statement. It is such a good clapback because it's not, I won't tell you anymore because God doesn't want you to know, or I'm not going to say anything else because God doesn't want this to be further interrogated. It's, no, you are specifically annoying me with all of these questions. And so shut up and leave me alone. (laughs) It defies humility and I love it. It's brilliantly followed by the line, I kept quiet then because I did not dare to overstep his orders. And I love that power dynamic between the mystic and their biographer, because often, you know, we think about the learning and the framing power of the biographer, but actually they are trying to tap into this mystical power that only the mystic really has access to. So in these conversations between Godric and Reginald, his hagiographer, Do we have a sense of an unwillingness to share his revelations? It is one of the tropes of mystical texts that there is this moment when the mystic is being asked questions and saying, oh no, I can't tell you, these are meant to be kept secret, I don't want all this attention, before eventually caving in and telling their scribe everything. Do we have a sense of that trope in this text as well? Or was it more of a case of, we found this holy man and badgered him until he told us everything. There's probably a mix of that going on. There are times when Reginald really emphasizes Godric's humility, which might sound quite odd after that statement. But Reginald and probably the monks of Durham felt like they had found a holy man who they needed to associate themselves with. And so I think their questions and the spiritual and physical care that they give probably ties into this attempt on the part of Durham to make sure that Godric is theirs. He is associated with them and he is somehow linked to the power of the saints who reside in Durham. Oh, which saints? There are a few saints who are associated with Godric. I think Cuthbert stands out as the most important saint to connect with Godric. Cuthbert seems to have been a model for Godric. His inspiration to go to Finkel is attributed to Cuthbert, who appears to him in a vision. But Godric also seems very closely connected to St. John the Baptist and the Virgin Mary, who are both very prominent saints, both in his life and in the miracles that he is said to have worked after his death. One of the things you mentioned earlier was that he accesses these visions through interactions with the material world. Have you got any examples from the text that you particularly like that you would be willing to share with us? Yes, I have got a favourite example from Godric's experiences with that crucifix that I mentioned earlier. 
So one day we find Godric praying with his eyes fixed on the crucifix and he sees a little boy emerge from it. This little boy is said to shine brightly and is described as of more handsome appearance than all the sons of men. This little boy, in a very fun way, skips around his church before blessing Godric. And what I find most fascinating about this vision is the way the little boy, who I think we can assume is Christ, the way he emerges from the crucifix. And I would like to read the passage to you. Godric suddenly saw the head of some infant emerge from the right side of the crucifix and so come out little by little into the open. It brought out its shoulders, leading with the head, next brought out by its hands and arms, and finally all the limbs natural to the human body. It took the form of a little boy, still clearly of a very tender age. That little boy, in this way, brought himself entirely out of a wound on the right side of the crucified. Wow, this image of an infant emerging from the wound in the right side of the crucified Christ is amazing. I mean, the way that the limbs are described as coming out, first the head, then the shoulders, then the arms, it really reminds me of childbirth. I'm sorry, a child has just been birthed out of Christ's side wound, so that is the side wound is a vagina, as far as mystical, medieval associations of body parts, bingo goes. We have one there. That's a theme. Great. I also love that he starts saying shoulders. First his shoulders. Oh, his head, then his shoulders. Like he forgot that heads should come out first. And then arms and hands. But does he say legs? No. He says all the other limbs natural to the body. Like, did you forget what legs were called? <laughs> also, that crucifix is not lying on the ground. That baby has come out of the side wound, is going to fall on the floor and crack his little head. The power of Christ is incredible. <laughs> this is a terribly unsafe situation for this baby. But he just gets up and skips around the church without a care in the world. Yes, exactly. Immediately, this child seems to have the ability to move around on its own, which seems quite strange given the birthing imagery that seems to happen when it emerges from the crucifix. And I think it's quite interesting to think about how the child is said to bless Godric. And while this vision is going on, Godric is just saying to himself, merciful Jesus, sweet Jesus, take pity on me. And it's amazing how that is all he can say in the face or in the presence of the divine. Yeah, but I mean, to be fair to Godric, how much would you be able to say if you had just seen a baby squeeze itself out of the side wound of a crucified Christ? I feel like I would be fairly speechless. Definitely. The shock is evident. And one of my favorite parts of this narrative is at the end of the experience, Godric is said to have been filled with such joy that he almost thought that he had lost his humanity. I think that is an incredible description of joy. It transcends your human, your fleshly form, and it really makes it feel like 
Godric connects in some way to this child, it allows him to experience a kind of joy from God that he could only access through this crucifix. Yes, and I love this imagery because it is so much easier for this kind of joy to be attached to the Christ child because even if he does know what is coming for him, he hasn't had to deal with it yet. So the adult Christ has more reasons to be less joyful. Exactly. And on a related note to that description of the limbs coming out of the crucifix, it is really interesting to contrast that example with the encounter that Godric has with the crucified Christ in his adult form. Reginald tells us that in this form, Christ first brought out the soles of his feet, pierced with the wounds of nails, then he showed his knees, and little by little, the smooth lines of his stomach. Finally, there came the very full shape of his whole body, of which he displayed his side, flowing with blood and gore, with wounded hands pouring out waves of saving redemption. So when Godric sees the crucified Christ, the limbs are completely reversed. The focus begins with the feet and works up his body until he reaches his bloodied hands pouring out this incredible redemption. And I think it's interesting to compare these two examples of Christ as a child coming out head first from the side of the crucified Christ, and this example of Christ as an adult in his crucified form with the blood dripping down his body. I mean, one of them's really happy and the other one is super gross, so fair. Definitely. There is a real absence of blood in that first vision of the Christ child, which may seem a little contradictory given the way the emergence of the Christ child seems to be so much like childbirth. Instead, Godric focuses on the white clothing of the child and the brightness as it dances around the church. And the crucifixion does represent a kind of rebirth in a way. So the playful, childlike nature of this child Christ coming from the crucified Christ is a really potent image. Definitely. I think it's really interesting how Godric connects to this life-giving representation of Christ. And it isn't the only time that he sees Christ appear as a little boy. There is a similar example in his life when he sees Christ emerge from the mouth of the crucifix. And it's a little boy who dances down and goes to the lap of a statue of the Virgin Mary which also comes to life. And so he has this very maternal vision of Mary with her newborn son, yet Christ has actually been born from Christ himself rather than Mary. So there's an interesting dynamic in play where the life-giving and creative power has been focused on Christ alone rather than Mary. Okay, firstly, he describes this wound as being gory and bloody and painful, so we know that that is already extant with the idea of the crucifix in the first place. But also, if this is childbirth imagery, that is not a clean, everything-stays-white, blood-free experience. It's just not. Definitely. This message of new life coming from 
the blood and gore of death would have been incredibly important for Godric and the people who came to him with their worries about illness and the deaths of their loved ones. I think it ties into the rest of his spiritual experiences when he shows so much concern about the fates of the souls of the dead. And perhaps this vision of Christ enables him to understand that death is not the end and reassure him that there is this beautiful white life that can come from Christ's sacrifice. Okay, so we've touched on a couple of themes that we find in Godric's experiences. Obviously, crucifixion, the body, Christ's humanity. We also mentioned some material objects. Are there any other themes that you find particularly intriguing? One of the most interesting themes that emerges from these visions is how personal they are for Godric. And I get this sense, most of all from his musical, mystical experiences. So Godric is actually quite well known for his musical talent. Three of the oldest English songs to survive a musical notation attributed to Godric. But Godric would not have necessarily distinguished his musical from his mystical gifts, as these songs come to him through visions. And these songs and visions are incredibly personal and focused on him, that it becomes quite an interesting theme to consider. For instance, the Virgin Mary appears to him in a vision and teaches him a song to sing so that he can call on her and Christ when he feels tempted or tired. And the words go, St. Mary Virgin, Mother of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, receive, shield, help your Godric. Receive, bring him nobly with you into God's kingdom. I think there's an interesting contrast here between Godric's song and the songs that other saints are said to have learnt through visions. As often, saints will see a glimpse of heaven or hear some heavenly choirs, and they will learn the song from heaven and then recite it afterwards. But Godric is given a named, personalised song that he can sing when he wants to call on Mary or Christ. It feels like a hotline, and perhaps that is the hotline that the local people wanted to tap into when they came to Godric and asked him to intercede on their behalf. I really like that aspect of it being personal, because you would assume that these experiences and revelations would be quite personal, because they are only happening to one person. It is a specific individual experience that they then choose to communicate to others, and that's how they get recorded and how we then end up having them. But these figures are so integrated into their communities and into the environments around them that their messages and these revelations tend to get turned into something that has a wider message and is for Christianity as a whole or is for their order, instead of it just being about them and their knowledge and experience of the divine. And I love the idea of this being a hotline of, you know, oh, we're in trouble. That's fine. I'll just call Mary. I'll get her on the phone right now. I can do that. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> Speaking of communities and how these kind of build up around individuals, was Godric ever formally canonized? Does he have a lasting cult? Does he have an ongoing legacy? What do we know about what happens at the end of his life and after death? 
No, Godric was never formally canonised, unlike the much more famous St. Thomas, uh, who died in the same year as Godric. Both Thomas and Godric died in 1170. But even though Godric wasn't canonised, Reginald reports over 240 miracles after Godric's death. And it's quite interesting to consider, actually, the connection between Godric and Thomas, because it has been kind of a running debate in scholarship how far these cults were in tension with one another or how far they worked together. And it's important for Reginald to emphasise that Godric and Thomas are a bit of a double act in the miracles. When they're revisions, they appear either to send people to each other Almost like here, you know, go off to my friend up in Finkel, he'll help you out. And I love this kind of connection between the saints, which was actually started in life because Thomas Beckett did visit Godric in Finkel as well. Yeah, but I mean, Thomas does have the advantage of getting his head chopped off and becoming a martyr for the church. Godric can't expect to become a saint without such a dramatic element. Exactly. I mean, Godric's passing was quite natural in a way. You know, he died of old age and illness. In the last years of his life, the monks of Durham gave him almost a round hair. And this is when the narrator of the biography brings their voice in, as they seem to be writing the work at the time while they're looking after Godric. And that's quite a interesting dimension, because Godric knows that this work is being written He knows that Reginald is working on it. He was a little bit hesitant. He didn't like the idea that he was being praised in this way. There was definitely an emphasis on his humility at first. But actually, Godric blesses the biography that's been written, and he confides in his biographer to tell him all about the secret mystical experiences that he's had, although only to a certain extent. There seems to have been a limit to which Godric was happy to share all of his experiences. Yeah, and we do see some apprehension about documenting the life of someone who is a holy figure prior to their death. And there's a number of reasons for that. One, I think they really just need those postmortem miracles to seal the deal. They need the person to die so that they can then heal someone of a sickness after death and really provide confirmation of their sanctity. But also there's the idea that calling somebody holy and giving them that recognition in their life is a lot of pressure. How is someone supposed to remain humble if everyone is telling them that they are a saint and they are particularly beloved? It would be really hard to do. The cynical side of me thinks they're also just kind of hedging their bets because there's still room to fall while you're still alive. They could spend 20 years following him around and then realize that He actually blasphemes or has a mistress or decides to just run away from their monastery. And that's a lot of time and energy down the drain. But it's clear that Reginald had a lot more faith in Godric. Yes, and that faith wasn't actually shared by everyone at Durham. It seems that not everyone thought that Godric was quite as special as Reginald did. There is an interesting story about the clerics at Durham and how they had this whole conversation after Godric's death about how Godric didn't have as many miracles as St. Thomas. And they contrasted these two saints. And of course, Godric then appeared in a vision to the master of the clerics and explained, you know, I'm not an archbishop. 
I was looking after myself and the local people. You can't expect me to be on the same level. And so it's a very much a teamwork idea of how the saints work together and fit themselves together in this incredible hierarchy. I kind of love that. I mean, obviously, humility, tapas, yada, yada. But the idea of saying, hey, I'm just a guy. He was an archbishop. I'm just a guy who happened to be kind of holy. I was looking out for local people. Don't count my miracles against his. Cut me some slack here. Exactly. Maybe more people are asking him. I was very local. Don't hold me to that standard. (laughs) Now we are coming to the end of the podcast, and you mentioned earlier that Godric is your new favorite mystic. So he's still fresh, but you did pick him to talk about. So... What is it about Godric that made you think, yes, this one, this is my favourite mystic now? Well, I found that Godric's interests really spoke to my own as someone studying spiritual beings, and most importantly, the human soul. The appearance of the soul was actually something that Godric actively sought to discover, and the passing of the soul from this life to the next, was something that he and those who visited him really wanted to understand. I mean, there is an amazing story when Godric forbids his former mentor, Elric, from dying while Godric's asleep, so that Godric can witness his soul leave his body. Even though Godric at first seems to miss this crucial moment, and he is absolutely devastated. But God takes pity on him to the extent that he lets Elric's soul return into his dying body for a few seconds, just so it can depart from it once more while Godric is watching. So I find this an incredible example of a medieval person wanting to see and understand the human soul. And that really speaks to me as I go about doing my research, as I look at how we represent and visualize the soul. And I think it's an amazing example of how this interest in the forms and the shapes and appearances of disembodied souls are actually not new questions that we're asking. Well, that is just the most obscene case of voyeurism I've ever heard of. I mean, especially in the medieval conceit of death is when your soul is reunited with the divine and to be like, no. You need to wait so that I can be there and I can watch. Why? Just to see where it goes? And what's the purpose of that? Just so that you know ahead of time? Like, ah, his went to the left. Like, what? what is that even about? Yeah, it's amazing how Godric has this desire to see the passing of the soul. And the return of the soul to the dying body is also quite interesting. I mean, it could tie into stories of saints resurrecting people and that kind of power, but I don't think either Reginald or Godric would attribute that power to Godric in this story. I think that the emphasis is on God allowing Godric to see this secret representation of the soul that no one else can really claim to have seen. Not in the souls aspect, but in the multiple deaths thing. It reminds me a little bit of Christina Mirabilis, who her story is that she died and then was resurrected and lived a life of purgatory and then dies again. But when she dies the second time, 
a nun is very disappointed because she really wanted to ask Christina a question. And all of a sudden, Christina is once again resurrected. It's like, hi, I'm back. Ask me your question then. And she does. She gets to ask the question. And then Christina dies a third and final time. And it's just like, this guy had to die twice just so Godric could be there to see it. I love those stories when souls return from the afterlife just to answer a question or to give an update on how they're doing. It's incredible to me, and it's something that I really want to continue researching during my PhD, as these souls return in so many different forms. You know, sometimes we see them in these ghostly apparitions, other times they are these doves, and I find it really fascinating to look at the different guises that they were thought to adopt when they returned, just to pop in and check on how people are doing. And of course, it speaks to the incredible importance of the continuation of the soul after death to the belief system of the period. Exactly. I mean, all of the visions of souls and of Christ point towards this life and this power that is in the divine and in the human soul itself, how it can endure death and triumph over death. Amazing. Jess, thank you so much for being here today and for telling me all about Godric of Finkel. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. It was lovely speaking to you. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic. And join me next time when I speak to Sean Hannon about Meister Eckhart.